This past weekend, one of my oldest friends from South Carolina, uh, a guy named Mike, went to Martha's Vineyard for the holiday with his wife and with his son. Have any of you been to Martha's Vineyard? Very nice. I have not been yet, um, but I would very much like to go. And the reason that I would like to go is actually the same reason that he and his wife went, which is because uh, actually has very little to do with the vineyard and everything to do with the fact that Martha's Vineyard is where they filmed the best 4th of July movie of all time, which of course is Jaws. Jaws is, and I am not exaggerating here, a perfect movie. Easily a top 10 favorite for me. And it can be easy to forget, I think, that it is a movie about the 4th of July. Specifically, if you haven't seen the string of shark attacks, there's specifically the plot of the movie revolves around this string of shark attacks near a fictionalized Martha's Vineyard called Amity Island and how those attacks threaten the town's tourist economy over the fourth holiday. Our hero is the small town sheriff who's just trying to figure out what's going on. And in the first half of the movie, he's set against the town's sleazy mayor who keeps trying to wish the problem away so that the beaches won't close. Which, if you think about it, is a weirdly complex setup for a horror movie, isn't it? And it's also, if you're younger, the basic plot of, of Jurassic Park, too. So, there you go. Anyway, this past week, my friend Mike keeps texting me all through the weekend these pictures that he's taking as they're traveling around Martha's Vineyard of locations from the movie. So I'm just minding my own business, and then ding, my phone, and it's like, here's the town hall where nobody believed anybody about the shark. Here's that weird dock where those fishermen tried to catch Jaws with a turkey. Here's this other dock where a bunch of people got on boats and they almost sunk them in the harbor. And as I'm getting all these messages over the, the weekend, I got to thinking more about the movie and I realized something that I thought was kind of profound about it. And it's this. Jaws is a movie about the horror of belief. Jaws is a movie about the horror of belief the difficulty of it. Not because what we're looking for is hard to find, but because it's too overwhelming and too frightening to handle. That's the mayor's problem in the movie, and it's the source of most of the tension. We, as the audience, know how serious the problem is. We got to see the shark right out of the gate. But the characters have too much at stake to let themselves believe the thing that's right in front of them. And I bring all this up tonight because Jaws actually reminds me of the backstory behind our main story tonight, which is about the curious episode of the Nehushtan, or the bronze serpent thing, in the Old Testament book of Numbers. The story itself is a pretty crazy one, and we'll get there in a bit. There's fiery serpents and miracles and all sorts of things that are going to be worth thinking through. But I have come to believe that for this story of the Nehushtan to make sense, we have to go back a bit to an earlier story from the Israelites' desert wanderings. That's the story of the Ten Commandments. As a refresher, here's how 
the story goes. Our hero from last week, Jacob, has many sons. And among those sons is a boy named Joseph. He's Jacob's favorite. But he's hated by his brothers because he's his father's favorite, so they conspire to sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. And this happens, but in time, Joseph's mix of wisdom and humility allows him to rise and influence under the Pharaoh. And then meanwhile, a famine strikes his hometown. And through this circuitous series of events, his brothers go to Egypt to ask for aid. And this leads to this great reunion with Joseph and these great acts of forgiveness. And it results in Jacob's clan settling there in Egypt under Joseph's care. But in time, Joseph and his brothers die, and then new pharaohs rise up who enslave their descendants. And this enslavement lasts for 400 years until the children of Jacob, the children of Israel, as he's renamed, grow vast in number. And the Bible says they groan in Egypt, and God hears their groaning. And so God raises up Moses to deliver them, to carry out their exodus from Egypt. And Moses does so, and then after they escape, their first stop on their way back to the land of their forefathers, the land of Jacob and Joseph when he was a kid, and Abraham and Isaac. Their first stop is this place called Mount Sinai. And during this entire journey that they've been on, God has led the people in these undeniable ways. There have been miracles and wonders and terrors galore. But at Mount Sinai, the Israelites see something that horrifies them. The mountain that they've been drawn to looks like it's on fire. And it's surrounded at all times by this cloud of lightning and terror. And they assume this must be the place where God dwells. And they start thinking about what that means, that this God who lives on the fire mountain is so powerful that his reach can extend all the way back to Egypt. And then as they're pondering this, their leader, Moses, goes up on the mountain to speak with God. They don't know why. And they wait. And then they wait and they keep waiting. One assumes they assume Moses is dead, right? In the book of Exodus, which records this story, at this point in the story, the perspective shifts to Moses. So we don't worry about him being dead. We go with him up the mountain, and he talks for a long, long time to God, and God gives him the laws which are going to govern all of Israel for all time. But then, after 11 chapters of law-giving, 11 chapters... Our vantage point jumps back and returns to the people who are waiting below. And those people do a strange thing. Exodus 32.1 says this, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. It's a great turn of phrase there. I don't know what translation that is. I think it's the NIV, but that's great. Anyways, here's my idea tonight in a nutshell. Exodus 32 is the first half of Jaws. 
the Israelites are the townspeople of Amity Island. Aaron is the town mayor of, of Amity Island. And God, of course, is the shark. Here's how this thing works. The Israelites are scared because everything about their way of life is being threatened. Although slavery back in Egypt was awful, their deliverance thus far has been a bit of an out-of-the-frying-pan-and-into-the-fire kind of thing. Whereas their rations as slaves were meager, their meals in the desert are non-existent. Whereas the work their men and women did as slaves was backbreaking, the wandering that they're doing now is hurting their children and the elderly too. Whereas they once lived under the fear of the Pharaoh, who was a kind of God on earth, they're now huddled underneath a thunder mountain, bearing witness to a power greater than anything they ever imagined. And with all this change, there is a big part of them that just wants to go back to the way things were, a part of them that is afraid of what is happening. And so, facing the horror of the God of their forefathers, they choose instead to believe a smaller and a simpler thing. They want an idol. An idol is something they understand. An idol is something that you can control. It makes your worship small and manageable, even negligible if you don't feel like it. And Aaron, like the mayor in Jaws, gives them permission not to believe the big and overwhelming and dangerous thing that's out there in the water or on top of the mountain. He helps them feel better about looking away from it. But here's the thing in the comparison, right? God is the shark. He's not going to go away even if they ignore this particular problem until it swims right up and bites them. The big question in the story of the golden calf, I think, is why on earth do the Israelites build idols when God is right there? And the answer is that God is terrifying to them. The future God is calling them into is a terrifying future. And we want to worship what helps us feel safe and what helps us feel in control. But the God of the Bible just doesn't work like that, ever. And so the tragedy of this story is the same as the tragedy in Jaws. By denying the truth, we create the very situation which will bring us the most harm. We keep the beaches open on the 4th of July. The Israelites anger their God, the same God that they're afraid of angering, by building the idol. And what then is the consequence for their sin? Well, the Israelites who have given in to their fear, will, to a man, die in that fear. They're going to wander for 40 years until 
every adult who left Egypt is dead. And then their children will be the ones to reach the promised land, which is a big oof. In this series this summer, one of our main questions has to do with why Israel tells such embarrassing stories about themselves. This story must be one of the all-time great examples. Why remember this incident? Why remember this moment of fear? Why tell the story of their wandering at all? After a few generations, no one's going to remember. And the answer I propose is because the Israelites want to remember and want to teach their children that the key to having a God like their God is walking in the direction of belief. The key to having a God like their God is walking in the direction of belief, following Him with small and brave steps, and being patient and refusing to waver or look away. And they want their children to know that that kind of belief, that kind of life walking in the direction of belief, does not make things easier for you. And they want their children to know that real belief is something that takes a lifetime. As I said a while ago, this is all backstory for the main story tonight, which is the story of the Nehushtan. The story is also part of the narrative of the Israelites' desert wandering, and it comes not from the book of Exodus, but a few books later, from the book of Numbers. We find it in chapter 21, and it starts like this. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. This is a familiar refrain for anybody that's reading through these books of the Bible, through the long narrative of this season in Israel's history. Yet again, the people are frustrated and impatient with the journey they're on. Yet again, they cry out to Moses and complain to him about God. And yet again, they say things were better back when they were slaves in Egypt, which means that yet again, they have forgotten about the shark. They want to keep the metaphorical beaches open for the metaphorical 4th of July, but this decision, as it always does, bites them. In the next verses, we read that the Lord sent fiery snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. It would have been beautiful if it was sharks he sent. The, the metaphor would have just like clicked, but snakes. It's helpful to know too that the word fiery here most nearly means venomous in case your imagination was taken with the idea of fire snakes and you're afraid of that kind of thing. Now you're a little horrified. I don't want any of you who have that phobia to freak out. They weren't literal snakes of fire. Nonetheless, their complaining has this consequence. God allows them to be bitten and allows them to be poisoned. And then we read this. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people, 
the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and he put it on a pole. And then when anybody was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. That bronze snake on a pole is the Nehustan, which is a word that literally means, and I'm not joking, bronze thing. And as we just read, after Moses builds the bronze thing, people look at it, and then they're healed. And I think you have to agree, this is a weird story, right? It's brief. That's the whole thing. I just read the whole story to you. And it doesn't seem to make much sense as an episode unless, I think, you connect it back to that story of their time under Mount Sinai. And here's what I mean. Once upon a time, the people built idols because they were afraid of their God. Their idols gave them something else to look at, something else to believe which was smaller and more manageable and less frightening. This was idolatry, not because the people made a tangible idol and prayed to it. That's not the core of the issue. It's because they did that because they are trying not to believe in something that is right in front of them. They were choosing something. They're choosing anything. It doesn't matter to look at and to trust that would be altogether less terrifying than looking at and trusting the actual God who was delivering them. That was their sin. It was the tragedy of looking away, of prolonging their disbelief. And so it's profoundly meaningful, I think, that God redeems that same story here by giving them this strange chance to kind of try again. It's as if God is saying to them, is the problem that the mountain was too scary? How about like a bronze thing, a Nehushtan? What form of mine will you accept? What form of mine will you look at? I want you to see me and to trust me. After all, that's the crisis that this is all in response to, right? The Israelites keep looking back. They keep looking back at Egypt. They keep trying to run away from God, but God must be faced because God is really there. You can pretend that there's no shark if you want to, but there is. There is. So here's the wrinkle then from that particular story, right? Numbers tells us that many Israelites died, which means that even when presented with the second version of the golden calf of the Nehushtan, this new way of facing up to the God who is in control of their destiny, there were those, the text says, many of them who still wouldn't look at it, who still wouldn't look. They were too stubborn, too independent, too doubtful, maybe they were still too afraid. 
The revelation of the Nehushtan story, the reason I think that the story keeps being told over and over again by the Israelites is that it exposes the truth behind the Israelites' tendency towards idolatry. And hear me, the truth is this, they don't make idols to fill the space created by the times that God is silent, which is what I think we think they do. God's quiet, I'm afraid, I make an idol to comfort myself. But that's not what happens. And they don't make idols because they actually believe the other gods are better than the God who pursues them, which is the other excuse I imagine we, we give them. But that's not it either. They make idols because they are afraid of a God who is too constantly and too undeniably present with them. They're afraid of a God who is real and powerful and demanding of them. They're afraid of a God of miracles and a God also of plagues and of rescues and of wonder. They're afraid of a God who will overwhelm them, a God who will swallow them up. An idol to the Israelites is a child afraid of judgment refusing to look its mother in the eyes. But if they could look, if they could look at their God, if they could look at the bronze thing that their God has made in order to better relate to them, what would they find? What would happen? Well, in this story, it would have been their rescue. It would have been their rescue. I said at the beginning that this story, and yes, Jaws too, is about the horror of belief, the horror of belief. And we can, and we probably should, if we're honest about it, get a bit of a lump in our throat when we consider how all-encompassing our own relationship with God is supposed to be. It's okay to be afraid of that. But unlike that giant shark, getting swallowed up by God leads not to death but it leads to something else. It leads to new and abundant and overflowing joy and life. It's a deliverance from the harmful messes that our stubbornness and our willfulness and our denial and our fears, the harmful messes those things create for us. And all we have to do to be free of those things, to live, to have the courage to look up, to have the audacity to have hope and belief in him. The story of the Nehushtan is a middle chapter in the Bible, in that the story of the golden calf there beneath Mount Sinai is a prequel to this story. And we need to know that story, I think, in order to make sense of this one. But it also has this sequel sometimes later too, right? Because if the Nehushtan is this symbol of deliverance that God has created specifically out of his desire to relate to the people he is pursuing, then the Nehushtan is also a foreshadowing of the cross. Jesus is the perfect Nehushtan, right? The person of God made flesh, made eminently relatable to us, made knowable 
and then in his death lifted up so that anyone and everybody who looks up at him, who faces up to the scope and the scale and the power and the majesty of God's commitment to his own creation, as terrifying as it might be, that everybody who looks up at that will be saved. What does that most famous of Bible verses say, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We look at Jesus and we believe. That's the pathway, not to death, which is what it certainly looks like, right? Of course it looks like death, but instead it's a pathway to everlasting life. The challenge for us as we think about and respond to these stories is not a simple one, but it is a pretty direct one, I think. Are we willing to turn away from the idols that we make to avoid thinking about the overwhelming love of God and instead look up at Him, facing our fear, and finding new life in its place. Maybe our idol is work, maybe it's family or money or distraction or the fantasy of control over our own lives. Maybe it's the perpetual state of doubt that we're trying to stay in all the time, which is, I would argue, just desire for control by another name. But here's the thing. God-sized beliefs can't be figured out from the sideline, and they can't grow without risk. At some point, to put a pin in this metaphor tonight, at some point, you have to get in the boat and set out to sea. It's not that you're looking for the shark. The shark will find you. That's how the story goes, right? It's that you're saying you're done with the lie that you can possibly run away from that shark forever. You're done with pretending that God is anything less than the overwhelming Lord of all things. And you're ready when he finds you to look up at him and to wonder at him, to be overwhelmed and even terrified of him. And then in that, begin to believe. I'll pray for us, and then we'll receive communion today. God, thank you for who you are. We start every prayer like that. But it's a big thing to say. Because on the one hand, you are the God who is intimate, the God who knows us and loves us, each one of us, who pursues us for no obvious reason. But the flip side of that is that the God of the universe is pursuing us all the time. And that's terrifying. And yet, you work to make yourself knowable and relatable to us in spite of our fear. And God, I just pray, I pray that we will have the courage to face you, to accept you and believe you, to trust that what you have in store for us isn't death, but life. 
God, I pray for all of us who are here that you will humble our hearts, God, that you will prepare us in whatever way we need to be prepared to have the courage to trust you. And for those of us that have maybe made a first step towards trusting you, God, I pray that you'll give us the courage to go another day and to live a life in pursuit of you and who you are and learning and believing who you are. We love you, God. We thank you for your commitment to us. In your son's name, amen.